Um, I imagine it's the clock change and the weather, but we'll, we'll, I'm sure we'll find out. But anyway, it's lovely to see you all this morning. It's really great to have you here. Um, if it's your first time, just I just want to reiterate Craig's excellent notices. Welcome to you. We have tea and coffee afterwards. Please do feel free to stick around and find out more about us as a church. My name's Barney, and I lead the team here as well. And so today we are into our second week on a series in Corinthians we're doing this term. And alongside our series, there is a series of devotionals. So on Sunday mornings, we're not going to get a chance to go through the whole book verse by verse, because we'd be here probably all year if we wanted to do that justice. So what we've done is we've created a series of devotionals for you to follow uh, throughout the week, and they are in paper form over on the welcome desk, and I also sent out uh, a digital version this week. There is one correction to make to the paper copy, uh, so when we get there, there'll be a sheet of paper that we'll, we'll have on a Sunday morning for that. Um, so that's where we're at at the moment, and on Sunday mornings, we are, we are going to be looking at really kind of two chapters a week, and we're going to be focusing on, on some key themes. But I'm just, this is kind of an extra notice, um, just one to keep your eye open for as well. When we get to chapters 5, 6, and 7, if you know what they're about in Corinthians, they're about sexual immorality, they're about marriage, and they're about all things like that. What we're going to do is we're going to have a couple of evenings on those topics. And so I'm going to be speaking on sexuality, singleness, and marriage, and we're going to do that April the 16th and April the 19th, I think, okay? So please keep an eye open for that. That's going to be a little bit different, but it's going to be an opportunity to cover some of those topics that are so important in our culture. So anyway, we are in, uh, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians 4, verses 1 to 17 this morning. And so if you've got a Bible, please turn there. If you haven't, it'll come up on the screen. Um, or you've got, if you've got a phone, you can look it up on the internet. As Richard said last week, anyway, that the, the church in Corinth was not in a good place. And there had been this report um, that had reached Paul telling him just how bad the situation in Corinth was. And he, he was the one who had planted this church. He was the church planter for Corinth. So you can read the story in Acts 18. And so Paul is deeply invested in this community, maybe more than another leader who's just taken responsibility over for somewhere. He's so desperately invested in this church community. And at times as you read both 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, you feel his level of exasperation, but also sorrow. There's deep sorrow in his writing over the breakdown of his relationship with them and also just where they're at as a church. And I think sometimes when we read back into it, we might not necessarily hear that unless we really look carefully for it. Because there are deep divisions in this church community. And because of these divisions, Paul has to justify himself to them constantly. So he's the guy who's planted this church, but yet he's now trying to justify who he is to them the whole time. He's trying to justify um, that he's worth listening to. And I think as he justifies himself to them, we find the real issues at the heart of all the other issues in Corinth. And so he, he starts his letter by doing this sort of justification thing. And so we're going to be reading from a passage that re really kind of hits home on that stuff. Um, chapter 4, verses 117. Okay. So, I'm reading from the NIV, by the way. This, then, is how you ought to regard us. As servants of Christ and of those entrusted with the mysteries, God has revealed. Now, it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. I care very little if I'm judged by you or any human court. Indeed, I don't even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time... Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. At that time, each will receive their praise from God. 
Now, brothers and sisters, I've applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, so that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, do not go beyond what is written. Then you will not be puffed up in being a follower of one of us over against the other. For who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why did you boast as though you did not? Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Oh, you've begun to reign, and that without us. How I wish that you really had begun to reign, so that we might also reign with you. For it seems to me that God has put us apostles on display at the end of the procession, like those condemned to die in the arena. We have been made a spectacle to the whole universe, to angels as well as human beings. We are fools for Christ. Oh, but you're so wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are honoured. We are dishonoured. To this very hour, we go hungry and thirsty. We're in rags. We are brutally treated. We are homeless. We work hard with our own hands. When we are cursed, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we answer kindly. We have become the scum of the earth, the garbage of the world, right up to this very moment. I'm writing this not to shame you, but to warn you as my dear children. Even if you had 10,000 guardians in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I have become your father through the gospel. Therefore, I urge you to imitate me. For this reason, I have sent you Timothy, my son whom I love, who is faithful in the Lord. He will remind you of my way of life in Christ Jesus, which agrees with what I teach everywhere and in every church. So here we have this passage. It's quite long. I don't know about you. When I'm reading the Bible sometimes on my own, my mind drifts off into other things. And then you forget what you've actually just read. And so you have to read it like two or three times until it kind of really sinks in. I find myself doing that all the time as I read 1 Corinthians. Because it's like Paul goes to one argument and then he goes to another argument and he comes back to the first argument. It's like it kind of goes round and round and round. And I find, I find this, chap, this uh, book quite difficult sometimes to just get my head around. But what this is about is we have Paul here talking about the fact that true Christian leaders are servants. The apostles, he says, are models of Jesus. But as he does that, what he's doing is he's making some sarcastic comparisons with those in Corinth. He goes, oh, you're so wise, but we're so, we're so foolish. You're so strong, but we're so weak. And he's not celebrating their wisdom or strength, okay? He's not, saying, he's not actually saying what he's saying. He's being sarcastic. He's mocking them for the way that they are. And I think as he does that, what we start to see is, is the main problem that exists underneath all the other problems. Because there's this like, catalogue of problems in this book with this church, but there is, I would say, one root issue at the heart of all the other root issues. And that's this, that they've allowed their worldview to shape their theology. They've allowed their worldview to shape their theology. Let, let me just explain what I mean by that. So Corinth wasn't an old city. There was an old city of Corinth. It was called ancient Corinth, and that was... Uh, founded by the Greeks. Now, about 150 BC, the Roman Empire came along and they completely destroyed that city. And then in about 44 BC, they rebuilt that city as New Corinth. And it was a port and it was a sort of a a regional centre within the province of um, Achaia. And, And so everything kind of gets built into this place 
this kind of locality, it becomes quite a cosmopolitan centre. People move to Corinth. So if you read Acts 18, Priscilla and Aquila, they move to Corinth from Rome. It's not a place you move away from, it's a place you move to. Does that make sense? It's that kind of city. So it's a hub of Roman activity. It's a hub of Greek philosophy and Roman culture. Richard mentioned those things last week. Now, in that context, where you've got this city that's a a kind of cosmopolitan hub with all these different ideas coming to the fore, what you find is you find something very similar to cultures that we have today. Wealth, prominence, that is fame, and greatness become the marks of success. Who you knew, what you did, what you had in your pocket, what you owned, and who you followed mattered most. They were seen as the most valuable things. And I think here lies the real problem. So as the people had turned to Christianity in Corinth, they had taken what they saw in their culture and they had applied it to their faith. When those in Corinth looked at themselves in the mirror, they saw themselves like this. They saw themselves as beacons of spirituality. They saw themselves as living in total freedom because of the gospel. And they saw themselves, each individually, as following the best leader. The problem is is that within the church, they all follow different leaders. And when they looked in the mirror, oh, they just loved what they saw reflected back at them. Maybe you do that in the mornings. You look at yourself in the mirror and you think, I'm looking great. (laughs) They loved what they saw reflected. You know, and, and so much so that they had crowned themselves with glory. They crowned themselves with glory. It was like, oh, I'm so good. I'm going to pop my crown on. But that had led to utterly disastrous consequences for this church. They applied their worldly logic to their leaders and factions had formed. They celebrated sin as good. They assumed that their Christian status meant that they could do whatever they wanted as long as it brought them a sense of personal satisfaction. They abused spiritual gifts given to the church by Jesus. They became either flippant on one hand or judgmental on the other. And they expected and assumed a level of greatness to be thrust upon them. Ultimately, they'd enthroned themselves as kings and queens instead of seeing themselves as servants of the king. Their worldview was shaping their faith. They prized the values of worldly wisdom, strength and public honour. That's what they loved. And what kind of shape was this faith taking? Well, their faith was becoming more and more based in themselves and less and less based in Jesus. Worse still than all of these things, they'd forgotten that at the heart of the gospel lies a cross. They sound like such a sorry bunch when you look at them like this. And you can look at them and think, how could they be so stupid? (laughs) How could they be so stupid? Like you read some of Corinthians and you're like, there's a guy having sex with his his, stepmom and they're all all saying it's great, right? And you kind of go, how could you be so stupid? And you look at them and you say that. Now, Paul tells the Corinthians how it is all the way through the book, and so I'm just going to follow suit with you this morning. You see, the thing is, you can be that stupid too. And some of us are being led into the same things as people in Corinth were today. You can get caught up with the latest form of, uh, sorry, the latest on form and on fire Christian preacher and think that if you listen to them and, and, and not other people, that you're going to be better Christian, a better Christian than those around you. You can buy into the culture of Christian celebrity. And you'll only do what so-and-so says 
that you listen to on YouTube or Facebook every week. Now, I'm not saying that there's nothing wrong with listening to other Christian preachers and teachers. That's good. It's good to do that. But if you listen to what they say more, I'm going to say this, more than what I say, or more than other leaders in this church that you that know you personally, that love you and care for you and pray for you daily, that is dangerous. And that's what Paul's getting at in this text. He says you've got many guardians, but you don't have many fathers. It's important that we understand, you see, that, that we, we need to be part of a local community. Maybe you distort God's good teaching on grace to make it sound like that you can carry on doing whatever you like. Well, God is all about love, you might say. So he doesn't really care what I do with my body or who I sleep with. He does care, by the way. We, we can think we're better than other people because of how Christian we think we are, how many prayer meetings we went to, or how many minutes we spent on the devotionals that we wrote. We can become super spiritual thinking we've got better gifts than other people in the church. Well, I've got the gift of prophecy, and they don't. I saw a miracle take place. We can become judgmental of others. And we can also stand in judgment of those outside the church. And we're not called to do that. We're called to love those outside the church. And this all creates a form of Christianity with us and not the cross at the centre. And so Christianity without a theology of the cross, what does that look like? Just to sort of round off what I'm saying here. Well, you end up with what's called partisanism, which is the factions. You end up with lots of people in different factions following the latest trend, personal idea. And if you get in a big enough group of people, you'll get lots of different factions. You end up with triumphalism. That's believing your own hype. You end up with spirituality without substance. You end up with works without love, with self-promotion instead of self-denial. Christianity without the cross is an ugly religion. So how does Paul address these issues that he's seeing in this church, and what can we learn as individuals from what he says? Well, what you'll see, if you, if you take this idea that at the heart of Corinthians, Paul is teaching them about what the cross-shaped life looks like, you start seeing it all the time as he writes. He says it in chapter 1, chapter 3, chapter 4. I mean, you keep going for it, you'll see it everywhere. How does he do it? here in our passage. Well, what he does is he points them back to his own walk, and he he also says to them that he's going to send Timothy as a witness, and he will remind you of my way of life in Christ Jesus. That's a really important phrase right at the end of this passage. He's saying, look, I'm modelling something to you. He says, imitate me. And what he's basically saying in that is, if you imitate me, you'll be more like Jesus. You see, Paul's life was transformed by Christ Jesus, and now he's demonstrating what that transformation looks like. He says this, doesn't he? To this very hour, we go hungry and thirsty. We're in rags. We are brutally treated. We're homeless. We work hard with our own hands. When we are pursed, when we are pursed, when we are cursed, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we answer kindly. We've become the scum of the earth, the garbage of the world, right up to that very moment. You see, wealth, greatness, and fame meant nothing to Paul. It's ironic, then, that he's probably one of the most famous Christians that ever lived. He had discovered Jesus and now had chosen to follow it in Jesus' ways. You see, Paul's life was echoing Christ Jesus, and of whom he writes this in Philippians 2. And this is about Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking on the form of a servant. 
being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You see, Paul was becoming more and more like Jesus. Following in the way of Jesus means you'll be the garbage of the world. As Jesus says in John 15 verse 19, If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world. But I have chosen you out of the world. That's why the world hates you. See, when we come to faith, we experience freedom and forgiveness from sin, the promise of eternal life, adoption into God's family and communion with God by his Holy Spirit. And that's all a work of God's grace and not your individual effort. Yet you're invited into something. So you get all of this stuff. It's all a total free gift. And then you're invited to walk with Jesus. You're invited to walk in a pattern that's been set by our saviour and not a pattern that's been set by the world that you live in. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, um, in one of my favourite quotes of his, put it like this. The cross is laid on every Christian. The first Christ suffering which every person must experience is the call to abandon the attachments of this world. It's that dying to the old man which is the result of our encounter with Christ. As we embark upon discipleship, we surrender ourselves to Christ in union with his death. We give our lives over to death. Thus it begins. The cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life, but it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. When Christ calls a person, he bids us come and die. When Jesus calls you, his call to you is come follow me. Come follow me. Paul had answered Christ's call to follow. See, Jesus says this in Luke 9, doesn't he? Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. You see, we need to keep the cross central to our faith. Because if we don't, we become Corinthians. We have to keep the cross central. You see, the call of the cross is the call to throw down all our desire, our worldly glory, our achievement, our successes, that's our crowns, at the feet of Jesus and at the foot of the cross. And we see a picture in Revelation of what this looks like. It says in Revelation 4 that the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who live forever and ever. They lay their crowns before him. And they say, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honour and power. For you created all things and by your will they were created and have their being. If the 24 elders think that Jesus is worth everything that they have, these elevated people who are going to be there in glory forever, worshipping the Lamb. If they think Jesus is worthy of everything they have, what does that say about you and me? And what we should be like. Where does that leave us? Is he worthy of anything else but all of you? Is he worthy of anything else but all of you? Now you may have heard this story before. Um, in, in the 1700s, Nicholas Ludwig von Zinzendorf. That's such a cool name. I wish I had that name. <laughs> Nicholas Ludwig von Zinzendorf. Oh, yeah. Um, founded a group of Christians called the Hernet. That, they were, that's the Lord's Watch in English. And they had this amazing zeal for God in prayer and in mission. The, the first missionaries they, set, they sent set sail for a Danish colony in St. Thomas because they'd heard of the awful situation enforced slaves were experiencing there. The slaver was an atheist and would not let anyone preach the gospel or help those in slavery. 
And so two men wanted to, from the Hernet wanted to do something about it, and they realised the only thing that they could do, the only thing available to them, was to sell themselves into a lifetime of slavery in order to go and share the gospel with the people of St Thomas. And so as they left, the boat parted from shore, they knew that they were never going to return, and they shouted back to their families on the shore, may the lamb that was slain receive the reward for his suffering. This became the rallying cry for a group called the Moravians. See, at the heart of the gospel doesn't lie our greatness, our fame, our wealth. At the heart of the gospel lies the cross. And to the world, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, that's foolishness. You're invited to lay your life down at the foot of the cross and hand your life over to him. So I ask you again, is he worthy of anything else but all of you this morning? Unlike the Corinthians, but like Paul, those two missionaries knew that our lives are Christ Jesus' reward for his suffering for us. So as we close today, I've got some questions I'm going to ask you. Edward, can I borrow you? Can you come up here for a minute? And we may, actually, in fact, can we have the whole worship team up? But could you just play in the background? I've got some questions for you this morning. So I'm going to ask you to just close your eyes. I'm going to ask you these questions just to focus on as we finish here. Is Jesus receiving the reward for his suffering in your life? I ask that question of myself, and I'm not sure what the answer is. I'm just telling you, being honest with you. Is your heart given over to fame, wealth, greatness, or is it given over to him? Are you living to imitate Jesus as Paul did, or are you living to mirror the world around you? Is your life pursuing the things that Jesus bled to obtain for you? Is your life pursuing the things that Jesus bled to obtain for you? Let's pray, shall we? Lord Jesus, I don't want to become a Corinthian. Lord, I want my life to be about you and you alone. Lord, you are worthy of every crown I might have every penny in my bank account, everything I can do. Jesus, you're worthy of it all. You're worthy of it all, Jesus. Lord, I just confess my sin at my own pride, my own self-achievements, the things that I want to achieve in life. Lord, I just give them over to you again and I say, have your way in me this morning. Just pray for each one of us here. Have your way in us. Have your way in us, Lord Jesus. Lord, that we would be able to say, may the lamb that was slain receive the reward for his suffering. Lord, that our lives would be given over to you and you alone. Lord, that we, like Paul, would say we've laid our life down for the gospel of Jesus. Lord, that we, like Paul, would say, I've given over everything for him because he's worth everything of me. Lord, that you would forgive us, Lord Jesus, where we haven't done that. Lord, we thank you that we're saved by grace and not by works. But Lord, we also thank you that you call us into a life of following you. I just pray, Lord God, for my friends here this morning. Jesus, I pray. I pray, Lord Jesus, they might just encounter you again right now at the cross. Perfect love, perfect forgiveness for sin, and an invitation to follow you.